Would you bow your head, please, in prayer? Father, uh, thank you for uh, the work that Abacare does in our community for these many years, um, coming alongside uh, women and, uh, and men, coming alongside people who are struggling with a decision that is really a life or death issue. We're praying, Father, that you would continue to uh, honor their efforts and bless them as a staff, as volunteers. Uh, thank you, Father, for uh, the good work that they have been doing. We do pray, Father, for uh, our country that, Lord, uh, people will come to their senses and through the loving and um, uh, carefully reasoned um, speaking of your people in the marketplace, in our communities, we can raise this awareness, we can uh, stand for life as well as, Father, coming alongside people who, the many millions and millions who have uh, made that choice for an abortion and are now struggling with the results of it and the consequences, that they can find either new life in Christ or the abundant life as a believer in Jesus Christ that he came to offer. Thank you, Father, for uh, the opportunity we have to support Abacare, Thank you, Father, for um, their faithfulness to you. As we open up your scriptures, Father, help us to have clarity in our thinking through your Holy Spirit, obviously not through the speaker, but just give us clarity and understanding and speak to our hearts, Father. What is it that you want us to hear today? And uh, may we hear it in Christ's name. Amen. Our, uh, our friends down at uh, Abacare, I think, find some of their greatest encouragement as they are on that front line of ministry, knowing that they are not alone, that there are many, many churches in this community, many volunteers, many people praying for them, supporting them. Uh, they're in the fight for life, uh, knowing that they're not alone. It makes a big difference. On Thursday, as Ashton mentioned, six of our FBCers returned home from Kenya. And they had been in the northwest region of Kenya uh, ministering to some churches up there that we are involved in and support and partnering with. And some of these Kenyan believers, it was the first time that they had connected with anyone from Fellowship Bible Church. It was the first time they got to meet anybody from Fellowship Bible Church. And uh, the team that went will tell you, and Ashton mentioned it, how thankful and how appreciative they are that there's a church out here in Winchester, Virginia, wherever that is, if you're a Kenyan, but they are, they care for us, they, they pray for us, they support us, they even come and visit us. And that is incredibly encouraging for those believers in their poverty, in spite of all life challenges, to know that they're not alone to know that they don't have to go it alone. It's very, very encouraging. There's nothing more encouraging than knowing that you are not alone in life, that you don't have to go it alone, that there's someone cheering you on, that there's someone supporting you in the race. And whether it's a struggle that might be health-related, a health challenge, maybe it's a, 
a financial challenge. Maybe it's a, a joblessness or, or, or a terrible job that you're in. Maybe it's some life-controlling issue. Uh, we are about to begin a, a new a class for men struggling with the areas of personal purity. And you can get the information uh, in our bulletin or call the church office. But it's, it's knowing that you're not battling that alone. Whether it involves a ministry here at church or a ministry thousands of miles away on the other side of the world. If you know you're not alone, you can endure just about anything in that whole um, struggle and in that whole process. Now, if there was one church that the Apostle Paul, the great missionary, the Apostle Paul, knew would stand with him, knew that he was not alone in the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was the church in Philippi. Take your Bibles as we begin our study of Philippians. Turn to the book of Philippians. The Philippian church was really, truly partners with Paul in the cause of Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew he was not alone. Paul had started that church, as we saw last week from Acts chapter 16. He had started that church um, about 11 years before he wrote this letter. It was the first church in Europe that Paul had, uh, had planted, had started. And as we saw last week, it was an incredibly diverse group. Lydia, this wealthy merchant woman who was very religious, yet she needed the Apostle Paul to connect the dots of the, the Scripture so that her eyes would be open to see Jesus. Or the slave girl who it took Paul to denounce and, and cast out that demon that has, uh, was gripping her uh, to set her free. It was the Apostle Paul who was thrown in jail with his partner Silas who was able to testify to the jailer in his crisis moment of faith and point him to Jesus. Um, a diverse group, a diverse church, and yet the Apostle Paul had been used by God in very significant, very powerfully impactful ways in the lives of these first believers of the Philippian church, and they were not forgetting Paul. They would not forget him. And they, they gave financially to him. They sacrificed and pooled their resources and sent it to Paul. They prayed for him. They even sent people along with him. They were not going to forget Paul, the apostle. One of the reasons why Paul writes this epistle is because he wants to just send a note of thanks. He just wants to tell them thank you. And if you go to chapter 4, at the end, uh, verse 10, Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. You've revived your concern for me. Once again, you've pulled through. And then he says in verse 18, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You have sent a gift. You've sent it through our brother Epaphroditus. And Paul was very, very grateful. I'm amply supplied. You've come through again. There was a very, very close and endearing relationship that Paul had with that Philippian church. And again, 11 years after he started that church, there they are. They're sending a gift. They're telling Paul, hey, we're on your side. We got your back, Paul. We know you're in prison. 
in Rome, but we're going to help you. And they sent this gift through this brother Epaphroditus, and Paul gets it. It was not just an endearing relationship, it was an enduring relationship over the years. You get a, a real clear sense of the closeness of Paul with this church in the opening verses of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, the, the, the spiritual leadership. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Could he be much clearer? I think of the Philippian church, he says, and every, I, I think I see every one of you people. Your, your faces are riveted in my mind, and when I pray for you, I pray for you all, and I'm so thankful for all of you, for everything that you do. Verse 5, specifically, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, verse 8, how I long for you all with the affections of Jesus Christ. I long for you all with the affections. And you might have an old King James version, and in the language of 1600, 1611, of the King James version, 400 years ago, the word is translated there, affection, the bowels of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, deep down in my gut, I long for you. I love you guys. When I think of you Philippians, Every time I pray for you, I get a smile on my face. I pray with you with joy. You guys, I, I remember, Lydia, the look on your face when I told you about the gospel of Jesus Christ and connected the dots for you. And the freedom to that slave girl and what you did as a testimony in the city of Philippi. You turned that town upside down. And you jailer, your whole household came to faith. And you weren't content with just keeping that gospel to yourself in your little corner of the jail. You proclaimed it. You participated. I long for you in the very inner guts of my being. I love you guys. He knew that they had never forgotten him. And he cared for them. He loved them. And he knew they were fellow workers with him for the cause of Christ. In verse 4 and 5, Paul says that. He remembers and he prays for them with joy because of their, it says, their participation in the gospel from the very first day until right now. The word participation, by the way, is the Greek word koinonia. You may have remembered that word. It's a word for fellowship. He said, you guys have written a book on koinonia, on fellowship, but what he means by that is joint participation in the spreading of the good news of Jesus. You have done it, you've been it, you, from the very first day until now, you are proclaiming and are participating. You've got koinonia in the gospel. They have shared. They have jointly participated. Now, they've done it in two ways. They've done it by their own proclamation in the city of Philippi. 
If you go to chapter 4, verse 3, Paul is going to address in verse 2 these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, and a little tension that's going on there in the church, and we'll get to that down the road in a few weeks. But in verse 3, he says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have also who are who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and all the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Yeah, there might be a little conflict going on right now with Yodi and Syntyche, and we'll deal with it, Paul says. But he said, these gals, as well as the rest of the church, you have shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel. You have been on the front line. You have been ridiculed. You've been laughed at. Maybe you've even lost your jobs. But there in Philippi, you have struggled for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have participated. You have had koinonia in spreading of the gospel. That's one way they have done it. But the second way they've done it is what we saw earlier in chapter 4, verse 18. They have given financially. They have sacrificed. They have pooled their resources. They've collected their offerings. And they've shared it with Paul so that he could continue his work in the proclamation of the gospel. Now, Paul says in verse 6 that there's something else that's going to bring him great joy. When he thinks of their participation in the gospel, Paul says in verse 6 that he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you is going to perfect it, complete it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, now, I've got something else I want to be joyful about. And I'm joyful and I'm, I'm, I just laugh in the Lord when I think of you Philippians because the good work that has been begun in you, and what's the good work? Well, in the context, it's their participation in the gospel. It's their financial giving. It's their personal um, proclamation and engagement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That work that you're doing in Philippi and through your gifts around the world, in the known world of the Roman Empire, God is going to take that good work and he's going to bring it to completion and perfection right up until the day of Jesus Christ when he returns, when this world comes to an end. In other words, Paul is saying, you Philippians, you may not see it, you may not even know about it happening, but that money you gave me has given me opportunities to share the good news of Jesus in places you will never go. But God is going to take your good work through vicariously through me as I share the gospel around the Roman Empire. And he's going to take it, and he's going to perfect it and complete it, and you'll never know about it until the day of Christ Jesus, when you're standing there before the throne of grace. And there's people from all over the Roman Empire coming up to you and saying, because you were faithful, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ came through that old little guy, the Apostle Paul. And we found Jesus because of your faithfulness in the participation of the gospel. It might be someone in Philippi itself. They shared something maybe to someone in their homes, neighborhoods, at their work, on the street somewhere. They may never have seen it again. Philippi was a major uh, uh, commercial center on the Ignatian Way in Rome. And uh, many, many travelers came through Philippi. And it's very possible that one day what Paul is saying is at the day of Christ, there's going to be people standing right there by you 
who said, you, may never, you'll ne- you never knew my name. You didn't even know I existed. But when I was traveling through, I heard you proclaim Jesus on the street corner in Philippi, and I came to faith. And Paul is saying, God is, he's, I said, I'm so confident that God can take what you have done in your participation in the gospel, and he's going to perfect it and complete it till the very day of Christ Jesus. That's the good work. And Paul wants to convey to the Philippians that God is working in them and through them. But he also wants to convey to them, not only will he complete the good work that they're doing in the participation of the gospel, he also wants them to know that God is going to complete the good workers, they themselves, in the gospel venture. Paul is excited about what God is doing in the Philippian church. He's excited about what is continuing there in their participation of the gospel, and that's evidence of the powerful working of God. They had a focused faith. But Paul is also concerned, and that's why he's writing this epistle. He does not want that focused faith. He doesn't want that that excitement to wane. He doesn't want that that joy of, of faith in Christ and being able to proclaim it. He doesn't want the Philippians to lose that to get caught up in the things of life and all of a sudden lose the edge that they once had. Paul does not want this church to lose focus. And so he offers a prayer, starting in verse 9. This is a great prayer. It's a prayer that should be prayed for every one of us and for our church on a regular basis. If the Apostle Paul were here today, and I would invite him up here and say, Paul, it's so good to have you. Would you please pray for Fellowship Bible Church? I have a sneaky suspicion this is the prayer that he would pray. Verse 9, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I want us to unpack this prayer. I also want to just share um, five things from this passage that we can say God wants for me. Five things that God wants for me. Here's the first one. What does God want? What matters to God? He wants me to participate in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is central, really, to the whole book of Philippians. The participation of the gospel. This is the kind of the key um, thought in this epistle. The word gospel is, uh, is used more times in this epistle than any other book that Paul wrote, other than Romans. It's tied with Romans. There's nine times the word gospel is used in Philippians, nine times in Romans. The book of Romans is four times bigger. This is a central theme. And when Paul talks about the gospel, it's a word for good news, but he equates it really with Jesus Christ. He said, I'm I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ. I want you to participate in the good news about Jesus Jesus Christ is Paul's singular focus. And his name 
is referred to by Paul in this epistle over 40 times. Jesus Christ is a central message. When he says you're proclaiming the gospel, what he's saying is you're proclaiming Jesus. It was central for Paul. Chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, that to die is gain. Or in chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, while existed in the form of deity, did not regard equality with God something to be hung on to, and he emptied himself. Or in chapter 3, verse 8, I claim to know nothing, he said, everything I count as loss in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. For Paul, proclaiming the good news about Jesus was everything to him. And here's the question. Is the good news of Jesus exciting us enough to be a participant in the gospel? God wants me to participate in the gospel. There's a second thing, and specifically in this prayer of Paul's, that I can say God wants from me. He wants me to grow in love. He wants me to grow in love. Now, verse 9 begins by this. This is my prayer, he says. That your love may abound still more and more. The kind of central request for Paul in this prayer is that our love will overflow, will abound. Now, interestingly, he doesn't have an object to that. He doesn't say your love for God or your love for others. But that's implied. What Paul is saying, that your love, and all throughout the Bible, the object of love is summarized in this phrase. Love God and love others. You could take the whole Old Testament, all the commands of God, and summarize them in those two. Love God, love others. They Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the law? What is the commandments of God? What does it mean? And Jesus said, love God and love others. You come to the New Testament. Those are the commands of God. Love me and love others. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. John also says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love one another. Sacrificial, unconditional, self-effacing, others-focused love. And Paul's prayer is that above everything, he prays that our love will abound. The fruit of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he unpacks what love is. Joy and peace and patience and goodness, kindness. Now notice that his prayer is that love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, all discernment. The NIV says, in depth of insight. That your love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. It's not only Paul's prayer that we love. His prayer is how we are to love. 
And he gives these two qualifiers in real knowledge, and it's a word that means not just head knowledge. It's a word that implies a full experiential knowledge. That your heart and soul, wisdom, is engaged in your love. And you do it with all discernment, with all insight. Wise, discerning love is what Paul is praying for us and what we need to pray for each other. Wise, discerning love so that as we participate in the proclamation of Jesus in this community and in this world, it'll have its greatest impact. Wise, discerning love. Loving within our homes takes wisdom and discernment. It takes discerning wise love to parent a two-year-old. It takes discerning wise love to parent a rebellious 16-year-old. It takes discerning wise love to be married to a hard-headed husband. It takes discerning wise love to be married to an unkind wife. It takes discerning, kind love, wise love, to be a single person in this day and age amongst your group of friends. Within our church, it takes discerning, wise love, knowledgeable, intelligent, discerning love. It takes wisdom to know how to love in the use of one's spiritual gifts. It takes discerning, wise love to know how to bear with a fellow believer's burdens. It takes discerning wise love to confront lovingly and wisely a brother or sister in Christ who is slipping off into sin. How do you do that? How do you love a fellow believer that you see is going down a wrong track? Paul prays that our love will abound still more and more in real understanding And depth of insight. How do you love somebody that um, is disrupting the body of Christ? Or someone within the body of Christ that needs uh, more than just spiritual assistance. They need physical assistance. And how do you go about doing that? Within the sphere of our influence in the world. It takes discerning, wise, intelligent insightful love to know how to engage that homosexual neighbor that's living right next door to you and proclaim Jesus. It takes loving discernment to know how to come alongside someone who is, um, uh, has no interest in spiritual things at all but is going through a life crisis. How much do you say? How much do you, do you move into their life? Is, is going this far, do, am I beating them over to the head with the Bible? How, how do I do this? At Fellowship Bible Churches, we begin this year of, of outreach and more than just a year, but, but a new emphasis. It's going to take wise discernment to plant a church in the Hispanic neighborhood in this community. It takes wise discernment to minister to fathers coming out of a jail in the Fatherhood Initiative. And this is what Paul is praying for. We are to love God and love others. 
and our participation in the gospel and proclaiming Christ in this world needs to be carefully put in a context of loving, wise, discerning love. And so he prays that our love will abound still more and more. God wants me to grow in my love in discernment and knowledge. Related to this, the third thing God wants from me is to discern the best from the good. Notice again the flow of the passage, the prayer. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that, here's the purpose, you can approve, you may approve the things that are excellent. God wants me to discern the best from the good. Paul is praying that we will grow wise, that we will have a discerning love in order that we can, and the word is to test and then approve, to wrestle with, examine, and then determine a course of action, approve the things that are excellent, the best things. There's a lot of good things to do in life. And if we focus on the good, we may miss that which is the most excellent. God wants us to test and approve the things that are excellent. He wants us to be careful, thoughtful, diligent, reasoning Christians to seek godly counsel, to be prayerful, to be biblical in our decision-making for the propagation of the name of Jesus into this world. I recently spoke with a man who was involved in a Christian ministry. And um, it was a a part-time role. He had another job. He had a family at home. But he found himself engaged uh, and very excited and enjoying immensely this this opportunity that he viewed God was opening for him. And month after month, he was away from his family, involved in this ministry and speaking and, and all the stuff involved, traveling away from home. Until finally his wife, and he told me this with tears in his eyes, his wife told him, I can't handle this anymore. You're gone way too much. And she says, if you go and take that next job, and that next ministry in August... He was going to be gone for a week. She said, when you come home, I'm not going to be here. I've had it. And so he went to the director of the ministry, explained the situation, and he told his wife, you're right, I'm staying home. But September, he said, that, that one I have to take because that, that's very important, and I have to be there for that week and week and a half. I've got to do that. He went in September, comes home, and his house was empty. And his wife and kids were gone. He had not discerned the good from the best. Is it good to be a part of a ministry and tell people about Jesus or whatever he was doing? Yeah, that's a good thing. To the detriment of his family? Paul says, I pray your love will abound still more and more in wisdom and discernment so that you can approve the things that are excellent. God wants us to realize choices have consequences. Who I marry, who I enter into a business relationship with, where I spend my money on, whether or not I take that new job in that community where there's no Bible teaching church, how I use my time, 
what I'm going to watch on TV or what movie I'm going to go see. We make choices every day. And there are consequences to our choices, right? And all Paul is saying is, I pray that your love for God, your love for others, will abound still more and more with real insightful wisdom so you can test and approve that which is excellent. Why? Why is this so important? He says, in order that you can be, the text says, sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The word sincere is a compound word. We get our word son and to judge. The son and to judge. And back in those days, uh, people would fix a piece of pottery that was broken with some wax that would fill in. You would never know it was broken. Stick it out in the hot sun and all of a sudden the wax would melt and you can find that it's not sincere. It's not pure. To judge in the light of the sun is the word. When we stand before God and our life is exposed on the day of Christ, every motive of the heart, everything we've done will be laid bare before whom we have to do. And Paul is saying, if our love is abounding with intelligent reasoning, wisdom, and insightfulness, and we're approving that which is really the excellent, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, we'll, find, we'll be found to be pure, sincere, and blameless. And the word blameless has the connotation of not causing someone to stumble. In other words, at the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to view, review our life. Were there things we did that caused people to stumble? That man who spent his, lost his family because of his desire to want to serve the Lord, stumbled his family. But if we're abounding in love with wisdom and knowledge and discernment, that's not going to happen. And all that is going to be possible, the last part of verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. What else does God want from me? He wants me to live righteously for his glory, under the glory and praise of God. To live righteously, to, to express the fruit of righteousness. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's just not righteous living uh, for my benefit. It's just not some legalistic standard I'm attempting to keep, a standard of righteousness. It's for His glory and praise. What matters most is whether or not God is glorified and honored by the life I'm living. Let me mention one more from this passage. What does God want from Mark Carey? He wants me to keep an eye on eternity. The judgment seat of Christ. He's alluded to that. He specifically mentioned the day of Christ two times in these opening verses. And to stand before him sincere and blameless is an allusion to the judgment seat of Christ. He wants me to live my life with an eye toward eternity. Not just get so caught up in the things of this world, the things that are happening. He wants me to live my life, to run it through the grid of the fact that I'm going to stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ. What we do today impacts how we are going to spend eternity in terms as a believer in Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. How we're going to serve the King in all of eternity. It's based on our faithful service here and now. 
Folks, what we do today, tomorrow, this coming week, impacts eternity. We're going to stand at the day of Christ before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and they, they must have been an exciting church. There must have been a lot of neat things happening. He thinks of them, he smiles about the Philippians. He's filled with joy. He longs for them with the affections, with the bowels of Christ. He loves that church, but he says, here's the bottom line. He says, I want you to live like Jesus, and I want you to go tell others about Jesus. Your participation in the gospel through a wise, discerning, loving wisdom. That's what Paul is praying for us. And he doesn't want us ever to give up on living that kind of a life. You know what the little phrase that jumped out to me this week and really hit me between the eyes there in verse 9? It says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more. We never arrive. We can continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. I've known Jesus as my Savior since I was five years old, little kid. Most of you know that. I wanted to go to Dallas Seminary since I was sixth grade. I wanted to be a pastor ever since I was a little kid. And that's what I'm doing. And God would tell Mark Carey, Mark, you have never arrived. Abound still more and more. Because none of that matters if your heart of love is off base. Participating in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest thing we can do. And I'm not talking about vocationally as a job. I'm talking about we as believers, whether at work, at school, no matter what age you are, uh, we, we are out there lifting up the banner of Jesus Christ through our life and our words. But it takes wise, discerning, thoughtful love so that we can grow more and more. And what Paul is saying is don't ever stop. Don't ever give up. Don't ever be like the man that Wilbur Reese wrote about who said, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a rebirth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy about, about $3 worth of God, please. No, he wants us to run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, to participate in the wonderful privilege of proclaiming Jesus, and that our love will abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment, so that we can be people who will approve the things that are the best. So that when we stand before God one day at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be found to be sincere, pure, and blameless at that day of Christ. Because we have been living out and manifesting the fruit of true righteousness to the glory and praise of God. That's the prayer that the Apostle Paul would have for every one of us. Let's pray. Our Father...
you've given us some direction. You've given us some, the, the, the heart of what I think really matters to you in terms of us as Christians. And now, Father, grant us grace um, to live that kind of life, to, to evaluate where we fall short, renew our desire to run this race for your glory, knowing that one day we will stand before you and give an account. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your enabling power. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Mm -hmm.